Hello, and welcome back to Platform Enterprise, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. I'm your host, Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and a writer. You can find some of my work over at platformenterprise.com, where you can also sign up to get these podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every week. On this week's episode is Simon Michal, an associate professor in the Circular Economy Solution Unit at the Geological Survey of Finland. Simon's research focuses on creating sustainable models for the mining industry and questioning those already touted as the solution to climate change. He points out that most models of circular economies do not take into account the fact that the planet's resources are limited. And he's currently trying to prod decision makers around the world towards what he calls a holistic interaction between an industrial ecosystem, natural resources recycling, and the global environment. In layman's terms, He's trying to figure out a way to mitigate climate change and avoid a global crash. On the episode, he warns against the illusion of complete circularity, gives damning insight into current oil production, and predicts that as globalization starts to fail, post-industrial parts of the world like Europe will find themselves forced to mine for materials we've been relying on China to provide. He also reveals a new energy paradigm theory he's been working on, which completely blew my mind and I guarantee will blow yours. If you enjoy these interviews and want to support the podcast, please subscribe over at platformenterprise.com. And if you have the means, choose a paid subscription. Also, if there's someone you'd like me to have on the show, I would love to hear from you. Email me at rachel at platformenterprise.com with your suggestions. All right, everyone. Here's Simon. Enjoy the show. No yep. problem. No problem. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Because I interviewed Steve. His interview just came out uh, this morning, actually. And he said, you have to, you have to speak to Simon. Okay. No problem. Steve's a good bloke, actually. He's a good sort. Um, (laughs) He's another one that's uh, uh, trying to roll the boulder uphill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why why do you think there's so much um, kickback in the academy? Uh, As in pushback from on reality? So what I think has happened is in the good old days, someone came up with an idea and that idea was very fashionable. Um, and it was so nebulous. It was so hard to, um, it was, it was so hard to actually sort of get any action done. It's, it's like suggesting, um, stopping capitalism and replacing it with something else without describing what that something else is. Yeah. And so people were happy to talk about it conceptually, but they weren't quite prepared to actually sort of cross the, cross the Rubicon and actually start practical discussions. And so that was 10, 15 years ago. And so we fell into this echo chamber-like mentality where we'd reference each other and we would say the same things. That was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened, I think, is we got tied up in price, the price of everything the economics of everything. And that world inherently is short term. It's Mm. what will happen in the next financial quarter or what will happen next year. Very rarely do we have discussions about what happened might might happen 10 years from now. And so that the, the, the the paradigm of the price of stuff, um, um, is at the very heart of our current culture. Uh, they're the current Kings and Queens. And so, um, we cannot, see past that paradigm. And so for that reason, when we talk about solutions, it's always, um, uh, okay, we can transition to a new system and we'll transition like bit by bit, like every year we'll increase by 30% or 
or, or, or whatever. And so the third problem is, I think, the nature of our finance systems are virtual. And since 1970 in particular, if they want more money, they can invent more money through quantitative easing. Mm. And so none of it's reality-based. And so it's, it's uh, um, and that combination has created a situation where we never really stop to check the reality of things. Right. Um, if you can, go and find Nate Hagen's or review some of Nate Hagen's work on the YouTube, because he mm -hmm. talks about the human species at a biological level, about uh, uh, how we're biologically geared to see certain things. And we're great at looking at short-term problems, yeah. but we're very, very bad at looking at long-term problems. So um, there's a, a phrase I like to use, the gods and monsters of sustainability. And he's one of them. I have a friend who uh, works on sustainability projects for the European Union. And he says it's so difficult to get people to understand the difference between short-term thinking and long-term thinking. Uh, and I have another friend as well who's kind of fighting to um, stop the demonization of plastic. Because he's like, you know, if you compare plastic and paper, on the long run, plastic is going to serve us better than paper will. Like, yes, we have a recycling problem. But if you look at the amount of energy it takes to require paper or the fact that you need to cut down one of the most valuable resources on the planet, trees, in order to make it, plastic comes up top every time. Um, and they work in spaces, they work in sustainability fields, one, you know, governmental and one a private industry. And they just cannot, they encounter the same problem everywhere. That people think sustainability is about solving the, the problem. It's kind of an aesthetic rather than understanding, no, we need to think about literally how much energy we're using. We need to look at the data of it all. We need to have a plan for the next 50, 100, 150 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, we, we like to think in terms of um, uh, uh, one problem at a time. We don't understand there's lots of the problems. And, and for that one problem, we want one solution, one magic bullet that we can say in a single phrase or a sentence. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've talked to each other and we've convinced ourselves that we are stupid and we can't ha ha have complex conversations. And some of us have decided that we believe that. And yeah. so that's, that's all going round in circles. Yeah. And so, uh, so I, I formulated a strategy to meet these problems because I've, I've, um, seen your, your friend is right. And I've been, you know, in these meetings with, you know, um, with, you know, European commission, um, professionals and, and in Brussels and, and Berlin, and I've been listening to what they're saying and, and I'll talk to them over tea and, and I'll throw basic questions at them. I call them the art of the bastard question. Um, and it's an art worth your learning, uh, if you're going to do podcasts. Uh, so, so, um, and I'd ask them a prickly question and they would just literally glaze over. They look back at me like a stunned mullet and, 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 um, they'd stammer a bit and they'd change the topic and drift away. Uh, it, it's, it's almost like they have these, uh, subconscious self-defense mechanisms. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought about that. And so what's actually happening here? And, um, guys like Steve have been operating for some time now. How is it they're not rich and famous? Why is Steve not on the front page of every newspaper around the world? Is he wrong? No. Um, so why not? And, and so I've been looking at the kinds of information and what it would take to actually get the right kind of information 
into place. And I developed a strategy to do it, which I call the reverse bait and switch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where these, some of these reports have come from. Uh, I sent you a, a, a list of some of my stuff uh, this morning for you to um, uh, look through, but that all appears to be separate, but actually it's part of one coherent plan. Mm-hmm. And the outcome of that plan is that we all have an adult conversation. And then yeah. we get permission to actually do some real work. And permission to be wrong as well. I think one of the problems when you're working with governmental agencies, for example, or at press conferences, is they always have to have an answer. You have to have an answer. Are you going to get torn to shreds by the public, by journalists, whatever it is, where sometimes we need to know, we need to be able to say, no, we don't know that yet. We don't have that piece of information yet. And we're working to find it out. Yeah. And so, uh, um, and also, um, to quote Bill Clinton, no one ever got elected by uh, saying what you can't do. Yeah. And so no, no one wants to hear that the party's over and life's about to become harder and we have to work harder for what we have. And, yeah. uh, and we've been living like kings and queens now for decades and centuries. And now we've got to go back to working harder for the basics. Yeah. Um, and and uh, maybe that's not true long term, but it certainly is true in the short term because we haven't actually done the work. Mm-hmm. We wait it to the last possible minute before it all, all falls apart, before we actually think about doing something about this. Mm. Tell me more about the reverse bait and switch. What is this information strategy? Ah, okay. Um, so I actually put together a PowerPoint slide to explain to my director general, my management, mm-hmm. if I can share my screen. Aha. So let me know when, when you can actually see this. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Oh, look at that. Okay. So this is how I was talking to my management. And so what it started with, what quantity of minerals will be needed to phase out fossil fuels? Of course, there are other questions, but this was a, a, a starting point. So I wrote that uh, report, the assessment of the extra capacity required of alternative energy, electrical power systems to completely replace fossil fuels. That's a report, right? Each of these bubbles are a report. So the purpose of that is solid data for the number of electric vehicles, batteries, H cells, and all that, estimate of the energy mix, the task is much larger than currently understood. And nuclear is needed, but it's actually not viable to expand. So it's not the solution. And the mm. p- power storage buffer stations are an issue. So uh, biofuels are needed, but also cannot be scaled up. Why? Because if you make uh, the, um, in that report that that's there, if you go out to chapter 22, I think if you actually make, make enough biomass to actually, uh, enough, if, you, if you create enough biomass to feed the system to make biofuels, we would need uh, an area of land on the earth equivalent to the remaining forests. Right, yeah. Uh, uh, yep. To create enough fuel to replace petroleum as in gasoline, petrol, and diesel. Yeah. Right, so the planet cannot sustain that amount of biofuel. Yeah. But it turns out biofuel is useful in keeping the aviation industry going. And it's probably the only way we'll keep plastics, the plastics industry going. So it has its place, but it must be smaller. All right. And so all existing non-fossil fuel systems are not strong enough because of the energy return and energy invested problem. So that will lead to the next report. And this report is the one that's coming where I'll take the results of the first report and write up the amount of minerals we will need to supply the metal to manufacture the needed number of units and then put that up against global reserves, and it becomes apparent that existing global reserves are not enough, and existing production rates are nowhere near enough. So, so yeah, is current 
mineral reserves and, and runoff, and we're out of time. You don't, it takes 20 years to discover mining and 20 years after that to get it going. So we should consider different mineral systems to manufacture because we're insisting on lithium ion battery at the expense of everything else. Mm. So one of the things that will happen is a new European mining frontier will be opened. But this, but sorry to interrupt, but this, this can't be good. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I do a lot of stuff on corruption and environmental destruction. I mean, mining projects devastate local wildlife, local habitats, biodiversity. I mean, you know. So let me put it back to, of course, I do. I agree with all that. Um, so, but my question to you is, if we are going to phase out fossil fuels, the only way we've got, the, the only plan we've got at the moment is electric vehicles, batteries, solar panels, and wind turbines. And they will require an unprecedented amount of metals. And all metal reserves around the world are not enough. And we're getting to the point where global, the global ecosystem for, say, globalization and free trade is becoming a problem. The China-US trade war, for example, is now becoming a problem. So Yeah. Yeah, so you don't want to have to depend on countries that are on the other side of the world in order to get your resources to make the things that you need. No, I understand that, but surely we're going to just see a repeat of the fossil fuel problem in, uh, you know, because there's there's a finite amount of metals on the earth. Absolutely correct. That's what I'm saying is this is actually not viable. Right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's, 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 don't, no need to be sorry, but, but it, 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 what I'm just saying is what is actually being proposed when you do the math, it's not going to work. Mm. Um, and you need to come up with something else. But what will probably need to happen is a European mining frontier will be opened, but the mining will happen very differently to how it happens now. And the people on the ground will be part of the process to actually make sure that they don't get the environmental devastation because it won't be about money anymore. There'll be national, there'll be national um, assets, like oil is managed by the Saudi Arabians, it'd be that sort of thing. But if we don't do that, then we don't get the minerals and we don't get the metals. And if we don't get the metals, then industrial, the industrial ecosystem either shuts down or we become completely dependent on the Chinese system in particular uh, at a time when um, the geopolitics of that is becoming very clear that it's, it's not going to be very nice for much longer. Yeah. So they're, they're the choices. You either accept that or you start mining yourself. So minerals okay. become strategic assets. So what, mm -hmm. what, what, what's, um, will happen here is like, uh, it won't be a case of, um, uh, we, we're going to be set on, beset by a series of hard choices. And the problem is the average person who wouldn't listen to these problems for many years will suddenly be in a position where they can't buy the latest iPhone mm. and they'll start shouting, we want our iPhones. And they'll start going after our politicians and say, I don't care how you do it, fix it so I can have my iPhone, please. And so, well, what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so these are the limitations. So then that yeah. comes to the next report, which is out, and that's in the list I gave you, is the mining of minerals and the limits to growth. And this is showing that in a global context, mining can't really expand. Uh, it, it's, it's, we're getting to the point now where it's getting difficult to maintain production rates. So the idea that you can actually uh, expand is not a problem. So it, it's not going to work. So conventional mining is evolving into a new business model, which is a nice way of saying it won't be profitable anymore. Um, <laughs> mining has struggled to maintain production growth. And so then what they usually say is, oh, we'll just go back to using um, cars, that uh, fossil fuel cars. Like 
if it's not going to work, then uh, too bad, so sad. Uh, we'll wait till someone comes up with a solution. And that's where I give them the oil report. And so the oil, um, from a CRM perspective, and, and, and the oil industry has been keeping this quiet, but we should leave oil before it leaves us. Mm. And so current peak oil production was November 2018, so we're now on the downward slope. Then COVID happened, but before COVID, it was already contracting. So, and during COVID, most of the oil industry went bankrupt. So if the oil industry cannot recover to the pre, uh, 2018 rates, then peak oil has in fact been reached. And uh, we need more exploration, more drilling, and, and, and more, all that stuff that we don't like to talk about. But if you don't do that, then we don't get more production. Mm. So uh, oil and gas is on its way out. We need the after oil plan now. Okay. So what will happen is is um, everyone I give these reports to, and, and they're, they're pretty senior people now across the planet, but they'll go through the five stages of grief. They'll rock it up and down those four reports and say, oh, what about this? And what about that? You know, first it's denial, then it's anger, then it's negotiation. Uh, you know, then it's depression and finally it's acceptance. Once we get that to that point, we can understand that the EV battery, H-cell, solar, wind, hydro plant is not viable as a final solution. And the basis of the next era of industrial ecosystem is really a stepping stone to something else. Yeah. Right. It's not the uh, uh, foundation for the next century, which is house top. So that will lead to an adult conversation. Right, so so we can have a frank discussion about the true, you know, what would happen if Steve went weapons free? That's what that is. Right, so that brings us to like, well, the first thing is well, how could we restructure things into a more sensible conversation? How could we do things differently? And so this is a report I wrote, which is like, like the start of that discussion. But what this is, is actually the start of the development of a more sensible resource stewardship management system and a holistic interaction between the industrial ecosystem, natural resources, recycling, and the global environment. They'll all merge into one system. Yeah. And, uh, but none of this actually, so that report's there. That's in the list. Um, none of this addresses the energy problem, but I have actually found um, some that's actually quite controversial. In fact, they made me take it out of the last report because it was um, not, um, there, there was no industrial examples on the ground, but it's an unorthodox view of this, unorthodox and not accepted by mainstream, but it's published in the literature at the journal level and say physics papers. I call it the new electric. It's a completely different paradigm. And so what's in here was a, it'll be a separate report and I've just got to convince management to let me do it. But it's a, um, I actually pull out some of Nikola Tesla's old ideas and describe what he was doing and what they mean. Uh, and try to actually make them accessible to the average person. I also look at zero-point energy and electrogravitic systems as well. Now, all of these systems exist. You can, you can say they exist, but they're not considered what sensible people uh, should look at when we had oil and gas. Why? Uh, because they were, they were considered uh, uh, too, too complicated, too far out. And there was a lot of discussion in the uh, literature about how none of this stuff was possible. So I believe it is possible. And it is engineerable, but, but we've got to actually consider this seriously, take it seriously and have a proper look at it, but we won't do it at the moment because we think, think, don't think we don't have to. Yeah. Could you explain the, 
what it is a little bit more zero point energy. Okay. So zero point energy is a theoretical concept that was developed in the twenties. So, uh, basically at a subatomic level, like, like really, really small level, we're sitting in a sea of energy. The energy is all around us. Uh, and so there's a, it's hotly debated about how much energy we're talking about. Like, is it, uh, not very much energy and not worthwhile, or is it more energy than we've ever seen before? And so, uh, this is like the energy that actually holds atoms together. It's at that level of doing things. And the ability to harness this energy requires devices that are very, very small in size. Uh, so we're talking about things that at the, um, you know, several microns across, like, uh, uh, two plates, a couple of microns across expanding and contracting and, and in doing so we can harvest energy. So it's called the Casimir effect. And that wasn't really possible for with engineering technology until a couple of years ago. Now we've got nanotechnology and 3D printing. And so, so I think if we apply those innovations to that theory and we actually start taking it seriously, it's actually possible we could actually have something come of it. But, but it's not considered sensible. Uh, so so everything, everything apart from the new electric is... Uh, or, um, the first four reports are documented empirical data. Mm -hmm. The bottom two are my thoughts on what might happen. Right. And then the, like the, the, the restructuring of the circular economy report, you hear some screams of pain from the purists when they read that one. They go, oh, oh, that's not possible. You, 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 what you're suggesting is impractical. Is that it? Oh, well. <laughs> Back to the five stages of grief. It seems pretty logical. I mean, I'm in that fantastic industry where I get to have lots of different conversations with lots of different people. Um, sort of jack of all trades of understanding rather than an expert of anything. And that to me, holistic interaction between industrial ecosystem, natural resources, recycling and environment, that seems exactly the way that we need to go. And when you speak to, for example, you know, when you speak to uh, indigenous activists in Malaysia who just want their government to understand that the forest is more than just a bunch of potential profits sitting there, but is in fact part of their home and we need to use it to develop, you know, you need to use something else to develop infrastructure and we need to find a better relationship with, with the earth or same when you, you know, when you speak to other people that are on this about energy, like it can, it's not just an A to B linear uh, equation. And that's what we're seeing with climate change is we're seeing the effects of all of our actions constantly. So, so what you're saying there, I've seen that before. Like I, I describe my ideas to my daughter and she gets it mm -hmm. right. But you describe the uh, same ideas to a professor with 30 years experience and they'll fight you on it. Right. What's happening there is, um, when we have our education systems, we are educating ourselves into a series of paradigms, which function like echo chambers. We don't like new ideas and we don't like exchanging ideas with other groups very much. And that's what our science has become over the years. So we're, we're not very open-minded. So when you try and sort of mention this to, um, a relatively uneducated child, they'll just see this is, this is obvious. Why are you mm. wasting my time with this? Now, <laughs> so, so, um, what you're picking up on is you're talking to all sorts of people. So you have to bridge all these groups. So it intuitively, that makes sense to you. So the reason I call this the reverse bait and switch is 
instead of actually trying to stand up on, a, on, on, um, on stage and explain what I'm doing and ask permission to do it, right? And because they won't understand, they don't see the point in it. Uh, someone somewhere would take the time to try and stop me. So what I quietly do is tell no one. And I just write these reports and then I release them. And after they release them, then I tell them all about it. <laughs> and, and so also the order of those reports were written. Everything except for the two red ones were, were written in a particular order was the top report was the last one. The other reports were more of a, um, that they seem like standalone pieces of work. No one really understood what they're for or how they fit together. And it's not till the top report actually appeared that the true, that the, 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 the problem actually came into view, but the, the top red report, when that is written, that will really nail down the concept of the limits to growth. It's interesting to see this get put into um, data and data beyond just, well, you know, the, the logical conclusion would be that we live on a finite planet with finite resources. So growth is impossible. Um, oh, write that down. <laughs> <laughs> when Steve and I were talking, he was saying um, mainstream economists have completely misled the world and they cannot seem to get past their education. They're Keynesian yeah. or whatever it is, education. Um, and it's so, and he was saying as well that other people in other uh, departments do work on different problems to do with the economy or with sustainability, but the academy is quite fragmented and people don't tend to talk to each other about their research. They assume that everybody else is doing as good research as them. So it's really interesting to see what an uneducated child would take as, you know, a logical conclusion and have the the data going to be released. Uh, when's the report out later this year? Uh, so all of these reports are released now. The red ones no, haven't been written yet. No, but the technology mineral qualities. Uh, that needed. will probably be next year sometime. Right. Uh, because what's happened is, what I knew this would happen is when the last report, the top one came, came out, I suddenly have come to the attention of a lot of people and I'm now being um, uh, lobbied of what actually goes into that red report. And so people are giving me resources, people are offering me help. And so the scope has been widened substantially. Is anybody trying to lobby you to take things out of the report? Uh, I'm finding the Finnish management uh, that I work for are, are quite enlightened. Um, and the, the reason they had a problem with the new electric stuff was because it was all supposition based on theory-based papers. It wasn't empirical data of stuff that's actually available now. And they said, look, if you want to do it, that's got to be done in a separate venue to that report. So mm -hmm. they still might let me release it, but they didn't want it as part of the top report. So, um, so the scale of the problem is, um, an industrial ecosystem of unprecedented size and complexity that took more than a century to build with the support of the highest calorifically dense source of cheap energy the world has ever known, oil in abundant quantities with easily available credit and unlimited mineral resources. And we started out with a relatively small industrial system and population and massive natural resources 
and relatively small pollution. And now we've got the reverse, a massive pollution stream now, where we're talking planetary climate change, less natural resources, but enormous industrial systems. So what we want to replace that with an even more complex system with very expensive energy, a fragile finance system saturated in debt, with not enough minerals and an unprecedented number of human population embedded in a deteriorated environment. So that's what we're trying to do. So I would suggest, and I imagine Steve agrees with me, is this is unlikely to go to plan. <laughs> um, so, so here's another uh, uh, chart that I put together that every, um, we, this empire cycles global currencies and what I call monkey business, right? So every, um, global currency, like we've got the U S dollar at the moment, right before, but each, each empire, well, it seems to last about a hundred years or thereabouts. And when it hands over to another empire, you've got a transitionary period of about 40 years long with, um, with, uh, some kind of conflict, like the transition between the French empire and the British empire, you had the Napoleonic wars and the French mm. revolution and the transition between the British empire, you had world war one, the great depression and world war two. Right. So what, what about now? So. I think we're, um, a, a case can be made that the next empire will be Chinese. Now that's a podcast in its own right, but they own, mm -hmm. they, they control 80% of the ecosystem at the moment, and they've got a plan on the ground where they want the other 20. So the currency will be whatever is the yuan replacement. The yuan is a fiat currency, and I believe we're heading into a currency reset and all fiat currencies will, will reset into something else. Mm -hmm. And so the transitionary phase will be dictated by peak oil currency default. COVID-19 lockdowns, uh, never mind the human cost of COVID, by actually locking the global system down for two years now, has completely destroyed the real economy. And when we come out the other side, we're going to be in trouble. Mm. Right. So then we've got the, what they call the IMF calls the great reset. And that, that suggests to me is, is the rich and powerful want to reset everything. So it's benefit for, beneficial for them. Not necessarily for us. And then we've got the granddaddy climate change. Well, sorry, what is the IMF reset? I haven't heard of it. Okay. So if you, uh, the, I, um, the world, uh, is it the world bank? The, the international monetary fund was actually mm -hmm. being presented to, at a world bank conference and they were talking about the great reset. And this was actually while COVID-19 was in progress. And if you look up the great reset and the, and the IMF you'll come up with a, their idea where, um, this is how they market it, right? The problem is all currencies have been printing money and we're all now saturated in debt and we're headed for a reset, right? And so their idea is by 2030, every human being on the planet will have no assets. No, they won't own anything. They have no privacy, right? But, uh, but, um, they'll, they'll never be happier and no debt either. And, but they, but it, it, they've been sort of vague what they mean by that, but, but what I believe that infers is they will call in all debts and all debts like mortgage, uh, uh, mortgage, housing debt, uh, uh, personal loans, credit cards, all of that will be called in and written off like a debt jubilee in exchange for handing over any assets attached to that debt. And so what that is is a restructuring of society into a form of feudalism.
Yeah. Right. And it's not very nice, but, but the problems that we're sort of discuss are pretty big and we're not the only ones discussing it. These are the, this, this is the top 1%, the rich, wealthy people of the world looking at this problem. So how do we fix it? So we stay, we, we keep our position in society. Uh, so if you take, if ch check it out, it's, it's actually documented. Um, it was actually sort of released as a, um, remarks, uh, to, to, uh, senior economic forum. And then it went quiet for a while. So I think, so, so what, 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 the reason I put that in there is someone's going to try something to try and fix this. Right. And, and so we're not going to get to the point where it all falls apart. Uh, and, but the people fixing it, who's fixing it and are they really working on behalf of the you know, humanity at large or are they working for themselves? So the reason I put this chart together is as follows. Uh, Thucydides trap, by the way, is in that window there. And that Thucydides was a historian that, um, uh, there's a book called uh, Thucydides trap where 12 and 12, 18 times in the past empires have transitioned. 12 of those times have resulted in warfare where a new power has arisen to challenge an old power and the fear and anxiety that inspires in the old power creates the war. So the question is, will the United States and China go to war? I don't think so, because if they were going to do it, they would have done it in 2015, but the, there are still pressures there. So, so yeah, well, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a discussion, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a yeah. discussion in its own right. So the United States had its empire based on industrialization, based on oil. The British empire had industrialization based on coal, coal energy. And before that, it was who controls the trade routes. So the new Chinese empire, let's say that's correct. It doesn't have to be. It'll be minerals-based energy and industrialization-based on minerals-based energy, right? Right. So, and so that's the point of that slide is, is we're going to grade out of oil, oil and gas, not into nuclear, we're going to grade into minerals. Right. Let's get into it. I mean, I think it's very likely that, um, it be China and that China be mineral-based. I mean, if you look at that part of the world, the amount of minerals that they still have in their, in their soils, in their earths and how China's relationship to other resource-rich countries, um, funding a lot of things, helping a lot of things. I mean, what it did with Australia, you know, practically bought access to Australia. So um, um, I've got a, a plan to actually put together a group of people and we're going to actually um, find the, the, the largest 10 or 12 uh, company com um, corporations that dominate each industrial ecosystem, right? Yeah, so recycling, refining, smelting, manufacturing, who are they? Get their annual reports and then examine who actually controls them at the executive level, who owns them, right? And then, so to start tracking about who actually owns and then, 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 then who are they? And then you'll find like large hedge funds will own whole sections of the industrial ecosystem. Yeah. And then the question is how many of those will be Chinese money? Because, yeah. uh, the, the, the made in China 2025 plan is quite clear, right? So where by 2050 or 2049 is what they call it. If you wish to engage in any kind of industrialization or buy any product that was actually made with industrial products, like the chair you're sitting in, your computer that you're looking at now, any of that, you will have to do business with the Chinese 
and there'll be no one else. They will own it all. That's their plan. Yeah. And they're, they're taking it like a game of go where they're actually trying to take over as much territory on the board. They're not talking, thinking in terms of military intervention. That was the U.S. strategy. Yeah. Which is why the U.S. never really saw it coming. <laughs> yeah, all of their military bases and never saw China coming. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, well, they didn't understand that, that they would use economics to take over the world according to the free market system. So what do you think... Um... I have a couple of questions. Number one, why do you think that wind and solar and all, you know, all these different types of energy that people seem so excited about, um, won't be the permanent solution? Ah, an interesting question. Right. So I presented to a group of the New Zealand government the other day. So if I may share my screen again. So this is a, one of the reports that I put out. And so in this report. I looked at in, a, in the global system, what were the physical tasks done by fossil fuels? What was the useful work with the knowledge that fossil fuels are not that efficient? Uh, um, so what was the useful work? And if we would substitute them with actual non-fossil fuel technology, how much electrical power would we need it? And then using the same energy mix as 2018, how many new uh, fossil fuel power stations are needed? So out of that report, you've got the number of vehicles by class, number of batteries, an understanding of when you'd use an electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cell, uh, rail transport, maritime shipping, and estimating uh, fossil fuel industrial applications, the feasibility of expanding the nuclear power plant fleet, and assessment of the feasibility of biofuels and plastics and fertilizers. Right. So that, that's the, this is the data we're actually getting from. So to answer your question directly, we've got the idea of energy return on energy invested. But um, how many, how useful is it? And so this is the graph that uh, usually describes this. The dark gray is net energy for society. So the oil industry, when we first started, for example, was around 100 to 1. For every dollar, for example, you put in, you got $100 back, or for every barrel of energy you put in, you got a hundred barrels back. It was a very worthwhile proposition. But what happens when we sort of get down to, well, for every barrel we put in, we only get to say two or three back. So, uh, um, oil, um, has, um, our peak of energy return and energy invested was actually sometime in the 1950s. Gas was sometime in the 1960s, I believe, and coal was still increasing. But of course, coal is not considered to be um, a good. Fossil fuels in general have peaked around 1960 and we've been on a downward slope now for a couple of decades. So fossil fuels are on their way out. So to answer your question, uh, I did some statistics of um, what was actually the power delivered by each system in 2018. And so the average... Uh, like I, I, I had like a couple of thousand, there's 46,000 power plants in the global fleet in 2018. So, so I actually worked out was the actual production of power in terms of terawatt hours over 12 months, 365 days. And this is how they stack up. Now you might notice that nuclear is pretty good. Gas and coal are pretty good, but everything else is, is not as effective. The world economic forum thinks that all new power for solar and wind is going to be, 
uh, uh, um, the foundation for the next power grid. So if we had to deliver a thousand terawatts per year, how many power plants will we need? So we would have to take out 142 coal-fired power plants and replace it with 30,266 solar panels. Oh. The, not, not solar panels, uh, uh, solar panel arrays, like a whole station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And so, um, or 12,309 wind turbine arrays. Right. So the scale of the problem is huge. So the renewables have a much lower energy return ratio on investment uh, the fossil fuels and may not be mm. strong enough for the next industrial era because you've got to make all this stuff. You, you've got to. Uh, so, so the other problem with wind and uh, solar is they are intermittent. They're highly intermittent. Like, like they're variable. Now, the grid needs stable power. So we need a buffer bank system, ba battery bank. Uh, there's your mineral reserves uh, problem. Like uh, the, the mass we need yeah. is in yellow. What we have in reserves is in blue. Uh, we don't have enough. That's a, that's a simple answer. So the global system in the calculation, let's say we take all the extra electrical power that we need to face our fossil fuels. We need 37,670.6 terawatt hours. Now that, according to the energy mix calculations, is 221,594 new power stations. Now put this in context, the 2018 fleet had only 46,000 power stations. That's, that's fossil. Would, yeah. Sorry, you would need 221,594 new non-fossil fuel power stations just to supply electricity to the electric vehicle industry. No, no. This is to actually replace fossil fuels. So we're talking oh, about sorry. we're going to knock out um, our oil and gas and coal. And so this is, this is everything together. Okay. And so this is the split of how many stations we'd need in the global system. The same calculation was made for the United States, Europe, China, and you know, the global system has four things in uh, parallel. So the reason I'm showing you this is wind and solar are highly intermittent. So you need a buffer bank. Now, at the moment, they do buffer storage in the form of pump storage for hydro. And you can only do that in certain geographic locations, right? So we can't really expand too much on what we already have. It's just not the, um, the there's not the uh, positions to do it. So the, the European Union thinks they're going to use lithium-ion batteries in much the same way that Australia has a 100 megawatt power station set up by Tesla in one of their wind farms in South Australia. But if we looked at just four weeks capacity, because as we get into winter, for example, there's less sun radiance and wind is all over the place. It, it varies uh, a lot. Um, and so in the literature, they're, they're talking about, we well, need 12 weeks for the whole system to actually get through winter and maintain um, levels. And so I've taken four weeks for just wind and solar instead of the whole system. That's a very conservative estimate. But the amount of batteries that we would need is 574.27 terawatt hours. That's huge. We don't have the minerals in the ground to make that many lithium batteries, which means we've got to find some other way of doing the power storage buffer. And there may be a method to do that, but I just don't know what it is. Mm. <laughs> so, so this is the problem with wind and solar. This is funny. This is uh, just a very small anecdote. Um, a good friend of mine once met a guy in a bar in Scotland up north, and he was an engineer on wind turbines. And this was back in like 2011. 
And they got talking about the industry. And he said, it's not the answer. I'm telling you that right now. And he said something like, it actually takes more energy to produce a wind turbine than it will ever likely reproduce in its, in its lifetime. So it's unsustainable. Is that true? That is correct. Oh, I always thought that guy was just drunk and talking shit. That's true. Well, the first one might've been right, but he's actually right on the second part. Uh, but because he's, um, the embedded energy in things is, uh, because we've got fossil fuels and because we can print money to pay for things, right? We can, and that system of wind turbines is supported by fossil fuels. If you had to make a wind turbine with only wind time, wind, uh, turbine energy to support it, you would find that you're putting much more in to actually make all the materials and put it all up than you would actually ever get out because after about 20 years, the blades wear out and the motor burns out. And at, here's the funny part. There's no recycling solution for those blades. So oh. they landfill them. Ah, you're joking. Yep. Afraid so. Uh, they're made of pla uh, composites, plastics, so they bury them in Africa mainly when no one's looking. You're joking. Nope. Who's the company doing that? I don't know, but I saw a, there's a European report that what they do is when they recycle stuff is they sell stuff to customers outside of Europe. Say, so you, you sort this out, you recycle it. Yeah. We don't recycle stuff ourselves. Yeah. Most of it goes to China, for example. If they do recycling in Europe, it's only the first couple of stages and they will sell the product onto someone else who has lower costs. So China does a lot of our waste recycling until recently when they said, we're not doing it anymore. Right. So a lot of stuff goes to um, Africa. Look up recycling of wind turbine blades. And so there is no recycling solution to it, but Europe is actually just quietly shifting all this stuff out of Europe to be dealt with often in Africa. That's and, awful. And, 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 and well, that's the thing is a lot of this, you talk to Africans, this is an interesting point. You talk to Africans and the Europeans still come and talk to them very sanctimoniously, like we're more sustainable and ethical and gosh, we're good. And, um, and so they present this, this holy than thou sort of attitude that, that, that we should tell them what to do. The Chinese turn up, they don't talk to them like that. They talk to them to it on a much closer level to what they're operating now. And they offer a lot of money without all the bullshit. And so a lot of African countries are just going with the Chinese. Yeah. The Europeans are not worth the hassle and they're hypocritical. Yeah, yeah. So, mm, oh well. Yeah. So, what I was just saying is that this is part of that adult conversation I was, I was discussing earlier. There's a lot of stuff that we do, and we know we do it, but we compartmentalize our brains so we don't have the consequences of one action ripple over to some of the solutions we talk about. And and it's not like this information is not available. And it's not like people haven't been talking. It's just that we choose to see things simplistically and we ignore all sorts of things. <laughs> so, <laughs> and yeah. I think um, our reality will catch up to us soon when the normal ways of doing things just becomes too hard and we've got to do it all on our own inside European borders. Then you'll see some spectacular problem solving. Oh my God. I'm just imagining the first few years of utter chaos. <laughs> oh, and all of us, because we, you know, we're such a, how do I put this? You know, we're a privileged folk. 
us Europeans. There's so many of us that, you know, there's money behind us and there's faith behind us and there's, you know, the liberation of the free market behind us. So we became entrepreneurs and artists and whatever. <laughs> Do we have enough engineers? I don't know. <laughs> so here's, here's an interesting one. So Europe stopped mining material uh, out, of, out of the country because there's too much development here. And they actually sent it out to the colonies. They, everyone had colonies. Yeah, like Belgium had the Congo, for example, and uh, you know, Great Britain had Australia and you know, South Africa, and, and so all the mining happened um, in the Southern Hemisphere, someplace else. So the idea was, and now that they stopped doing that when the colonies stopped, and so now we actually buy not metals, we buy finished products. And those finished products are not manufactured in Europe most of the time, or well, some of them are. But those, the stuff that's actually manufactured in Europe is built on components that are manufactured elsewhere. And they're all at the moment ma manufactured in Southeast Asia yeah, right, um, or East Asia. And so China, Japan, Korea, you know, you know, that, that trinity, you know, Taiwan, that, that, that controls most of the um, uh, technology we have today. But we buy products in the market from them. And it's all free trade. It'll always be free trade. And while we've got the money, that's not a problem. But over the time, we've now got more debt than money. And so the problems, for example, in Southern Europe in particular, you know, with the global financial crisis and the bailouts, and we don't have the money anymore. And the people that we used to look down our nose at have now got more money than us and the industrial capacity, and they've got long memories, right? And, and so I call it the China firewall because uh, um, we buy stuff from China, we like their products, but we are completely isolated from what China has had to go through to manufacture those goods and extract those materials and the environmental problems that they are wearing in their own country. And we'll happily lecture them about how terrible that is, but then we'll buy their products. Yeah. 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 Sigh. I know. Nobody, you, you just can't have this level of living like kings and queens, as you said before. Um, with everybody being able to have, certainly in Europe, you know, anything that they want at any time yeah, and have a sustainable world. And it is a complete fallacy for any nation in the West to think at any point that they're developing sustainably when the focus is still GDP, when the focus is still growth. And when exactly as you say, we're buying all of our consumer goods from countries where we have no idea about the environmental and um, degradation or the laws or the rules that are put in place. I do a lot of work uh, covering Malaysia. It is shocking how much like that rainforest is just gone. It is gone. So now they're mining the earth. So let's, let's leave here and go up into orbit and look at the whole planet back again and look at the sustainability question. And you know, the phrase nature bats last, mm -hmm. right? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the meanest and nastiest of them all, right? Nature will bat last and we will be required to become sustainable. As in, it won't be by choice, it will be by necessity because we physically can't do anything the other, any other way. And what it will mean though is the radical restructuring in a disruptive kind of way of all existing systems. Yeah. And it will be a wake-up call like we've never seen. The human species won't die, but, but we will have a spectacular lesson in manners. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so so and, and it's inevitable. It's it's not a choice. What's the time scale? Unknown. I, I when I see these things is uh, 
we're seeing, uh, I, I think in terms of pain thresholds, there are seven groupings of macro scale problems facing us now. And the climate change environmental stuff is one group, right? And so what I say, we will see a pain threshold where these problems are visible now, but they'll be painful enough for us to do something about or, or have them done to us um, at some point. And mm. I, I reckon we will get into, say, 2040, maybe 2050, and some of these pollution waste streams will come us and bite us in the backside and we'll wonder, why didn't the people before us do anything? Oh, like they're any different. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so a lot of it comes back to our biology. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, are we that different to a yeast um, bacteria culture? Yeah. Where we just consume everything in our path. We always will take the easiest um, path. This is why Nate Hagen's is, uh, work is so valuable. He's actually looked at how the human species actually thinks biologically mm. at a you know, hunter-gatherer level of... Uh, how do we problem solve and, and how do we outmaneuver predators? And uh, uh, our biology is telling us to do these things. And so what we're trying to do, if you will, to try and become more sustainable, it is a battle of wills between our biology facing off against our human consciousness, our ability to have an educator and intellectual conversation. Instinct versus intellect. It, it's uh, and that's why we're having such trouble with it. And well, there's stuff. Well, what, what do we? Why don't we look at stuff then? And if that doesn't work, let's fight each other. Um, yeah, yeah. I know. I I see a lot of this rhetoric in um, social media with with young with young people. Often, you know, university students, pseudo intellectuals, if I may say. And there's a lot of this thing of like, you know, the world will just write itself. You know, like the left is going to come up and take power or, or, or a nation will collapse. And, you know, and it's like you, it, revolution is never a good thing. If we can do <laughs> if we can avoid revolution, we should absolutely do that. Sure. Because, OK, yes, finally, you know, the French, they chopped off the heads. And then, you know, the story we know is that the, the proletariat, the man was liberated. You forget about the terror. Yeah. yeah. And the poverty. Yeah. yeah. If you've got the time check out, uh, there's a, a book called The Fourth Turning. If you type in The Fourth Turning into YouTube, uh, you'll come up with a, a couple of podcasts which describe the concept. And these are a couple of historians that found a pattern in history. And he said, every 80 years, there is a period of strife in the American culture. 80 years ago, there was the end of World War II. 80 years before that was the Civil War. Mm. 80 years before that was the War of Independence. They, they, they keep going in very, all the way back to the 1492 era. And so within that 80-year cycle, there are four generations or four turnings. And each generation sees the world very differently. You, you know how we often sort of say, how would the generation that fought World War II view us now? And the, and your, the, the simple answer is they see us as soft in the head and ungrateful brats because mm. we've lost touch of the consequences of some of our actions. Right. So this is actually a cycle and we're in the fourth turning now. It started in 2008, according to that basic yeah. cycle, and it will run till 2030. And, and you, had, you have the ideas of revolution and, and um, cats and dogs living together and, and all things uh, normal get overturned and all that. Oh, I'll put a note in my diary. <laughs> 2030. <laughs> <laughs> we turned the corner. <laughs> so 2030 is an interesting date mm. because the European Commission claims that one third of the existing system will be electrified by then. 
And so I've now got some numbers. Well, I, I, I call bullshit on her as well. Uh, but uh, that means 70,000 new power stations will be manufactured in the global system. Now, here's the interesting part. 70,000 new power stations, including 300 and something nuclear power plants. Right. If that was true, because it takes about four or five years to actually build a power plant, and, and uh, it's about five or six years for uh, a big system. So you've got to have tenders out years ahead of time. Those tenders should be on the ground now, no. especially, are they? No. So I, I, I was talking to uh, a group called Wilton Park, which reports the House of Lords in the British government. And there was, there was like, um, one of the ambassadors was online and I asked him, uh, he was spouting the usual stuff about how um, uh, Her Majesty's government was, was planning uh, um, to be green and, and, and sustainable and wonderful and how we're going to hit our targets. And go, Great. So I asked him, what new capacity is being built into the power station? What kinds of power stations are they planning and where are they being planned? And you could hear him, um, you know, I could hear his sphincter contract on the other end of the line. Like, is this, there, there, was, there was nothing. He had, the, it, it turned out he had no idea of any of it. And as for uh, uh, an investment of an industrial reform like that would be so large, it would influence all parts of the sector and we would all know it. You would know it because it would be planned as such a big thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what I'm just saying here is these governments are saying nice platitudes to keep us all happy, but there's actually no action happening yeah. at all. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's, it's greenwashing to the nth degree. Yeah. So greenwashing, if you were to bottle it and sell it as paint, is that, is that a good thing? Uh, <laughs> now, but so if that is true, we are one political cycle away from the voting public, the great unwashed, realizing for the first time that their governments never had any intention of doing anything. They were just telling them what they wished to hear. Now that has implications for their mandate to govern. Now, contrary to popular belief, politicians aren't that stupid. They're not that bright, but they're not stupid either. They know that this problem is coming. And so my question to them is, so what are they up to? What are you doing? What are you planning? So, or, or don't they think that's going to be a problem? <laughs> what happens when reality comes to dinner? Well, interestingly enough, there's this, um, and I've talked about it on this podcast before, there's this trend of Silicon Valley millionaires, not necessarily just the billionaires, but millionaires um, who are buying up pieces of land in New Zealand and other remote parts of the world to build bunkers. So these are the people kind of at the edge of um, technology who know best or, you know, you would think they know best what kind of solutions would be available um, and who also have the means to influence culture in Silicon Valley. And they feel so helpless and powerless. They're buying up land to be able to protect their families. I mean, you've got to wonder in the, you know, the House of Lords and governments all around the world, if that's kind of where these people are at, you know, oh, well, I don't think like you with the, the, the new electric, like, okay, yes, there's this unknown thing that we might be able to discover, which might be able to help. Um, but that's, it's not concrete enough for a lot of people, especially people that aren't scientists or historians that understand that culture uh, progresses step by step and you often can't see where step five will be when you're on step two type thing. Um, 
So I don't know, maybe they're planning on protecting themselves in some way. That does make, there's a continuity of government protocols that the Americans, the Americans tend to shout things from the rooftops. There's no subtlety or tact to any of them. And so you just, you just got to go and listen and and, and download stuff from their government websites. uh, They've got lots of deep underground military bases and they've got continuity of government protocols. So if it all gets too hard, you know, they've got a plan for that that doesn't involve us. Mm. Uh, So... Um, when I was re- writing the oil report, the oil from the CRM perspective, that's on that list I sent you, uh, I did a section on how many governments around the world actually knew about the incoming problem with oil and gas. And it was very, very interesting. Um, so what you've got is, a um, there are about 10, something like 10 studies that have been done in, uh, around the world by various governments. Well, they knew damn well that there was a problem. Every single one of those studies were considered confidential and a matter of national security and not to actually tell anyone about, right? And so, oh, really? Okay. What does that suggest? It suggests to me that they knew exactly what's going on. So... Could you send me those or a link to those? You've got that already. Right. Uh, In the oil report, uh, it's actually in one of the chapters. I, I can see if I can... Um, I actually, uh, and the, one of the reports was leaked, the German military, the German government did a, um, um, uh, the German government did a, a series of reports on that. If I may share my screen, because I, what the, the outcome of that, you said, do they know? What we have here is a figure I put together. And this figure is countries with significant oil reserve, oil consumption and production that have been engaged in military action and the imposition of economic sanctions in the last 39 years. Mm-hmm. So the column on the right are the aggressors, and the column on the left are the recipients of that aggression. So the column on the right, United States, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, until 1991, uh, they were a US ally. Canada, European Union, United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is peak oil literate. The European Union is peak oil literate. Canada is peak oil literate. Saudi Arabia, well, they're not telling anyone, but they're not stupid. The United States is peak oil literate as well. On the other side are the recipients. We've got Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Iran again for economic sanctions, Venezuela and Russia have been subject to um, to, um, sanctions. So what this means is the recipients had 44.3% reserves, 26% production and 6.8% consumption. The aggressors had 36% reserves, 42% production, 42% um, um, consumption. Put that together. These are the countries, the members of the United Nations Assembly. There are 196 in the United Nations Assembly. The 10 countries shown there have 77.9% of reserves, 64% of oil production, and a little under half of oil consumption. So a case can be made that the military conflicts, military and economic, can be seen in the context of who controls the oil market as that market approaches peak oil. Yeah. yeah. Right. So there it is. And so the column on the, on the right is one big giant alliance. Yeah. Yeah. 39 years. So are our governments, um, our government uh, actions, are they peak oil literate? Yes, they are. Um, have they done something about it? Yes, they went to war. 
Uh, and, and now that peak oil has actually come, what will they do? And will they tell us? No, 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 they won't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, but, uh, so there's a great deal of effort to keep us fighting amongst ourselves at the moment. Like instead of actually discussing these problems, um, we're very much, uh, obsessed with critical race theory, uh, or, um, arguing on the internet, uh, who has the best TikTok video of who's going to the toilet? Uh, you know, you know um, racism. Yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to play the racism card when it's, it's obvious bullshit, right? But this is instead of actually fighting each other, we should be looking at these problems and holding our leaders accountable. And if they don't have any answers, we should replace them and replace them with someone who's also accountable. And if they don't do anything, we replace them too. Yeah, yeah. And that's not happening. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh yeah, this is not rocket science. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, for whatever reason, democracy's hard. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure leading is hard too. So democracy, okay. Um, I th what I think here is is um, the average person has become so dumbed down yeah. uh, that they, they don't have the time. They're exhausted. They don't have the time to actually think critically on the, this stuff. And so they'll just get the information from the news. But now so much of that news stream has been corrupted that it's not true. That, that, what do they do? And so people are just, they're exhausted. They're, they're, they're working damn hard just to keep the, you know, make ends meet. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's very easy to say, you know, think for yourself, but it, there are practicalities for the average person who don't have the education to actually handle these things. Yeah, absolutely. And who are deliberately denied that education in school. Yeah, so... Uh, um, but I, I think there'll come a point where the humanity will rise to the occasion, uh, and we're not as, as, um, ill-mannered and uneducated as it, uh, advertised <laughs> when, when, when it comes to the point when these things are apparent to the point where they can't be hidden anymore, we will have a frank and adult conversation. We will actually start to address these needs, but it'll be done in a triage fashion. Uh, what they call the long emergency. It'll be one damn thing after another yeah. and it'll be problem solving to try and sort of get through it one, one step at a time. Yeah. It just won't be very pretty. It won't be easy. And, um, and, uh, we'll think, look back on this era as the golden age. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully we will rise as you say. We have no choice. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, well, that's true. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time today. This is absolutely fascinating. Tell me, um, who would you like to platform? And I might not have asked you to prepare this, but in, in the same way that Steve platformed you, is there someone that I can go out and yeah? Yeah. Okay. Who would I drop in? Uh, Nate Hagens. He's a, he's a he he he's he's a good he's a, he's busy. But he talks mm -hmm. to senior people and he's got excellent ideas. Okay. Uh, Gail Tverberg. Um, she does um. The website, um, Our Finite World. Uh, she's a retired actuary who has a talent for handling large numbers and her intellect is amazing. She's a good handle on these things. Alice Friedemann. Uh, she wrote uh, When When Do Trucks Stop? Uh, who else got Nicole Foss. Uh, there's a whole lot of others, but you know, once, you, once you talk to those people, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. 
Thank you so much, Simon. You, you've left me with a lot to think about. Okay, so I've given you some material. Go through it. We can go again if you like. If you think I've uh, incorrectly diagnosed something, come after me and we'll, okay. we'll, we'll go again. Um, and if you want to do a podcast on our related topic, not a problem. I would absolutely love to. We'll definitely be taking you up on that. Thank you, you so much. Au revoir. Cheers, Simon. I'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, hello, me again. You can follow the Geological Survey of Finland on Twitter at GTK underscore FI. You can also find me on Twitter, actually, at Debaudoir. That's uh, D-E-B-E-A-U-D-O-I-R. Uh, maybe any French speakers will get the joke in there. The bad joke, by the way. Um, also, before you go, please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and subscribe over at platformenterprise.com where you can choose a paid subscription, which helps me platform these fantastic guests and their vital knowledge. Thank you all for supporting the podcast. See you next week.